Amen. Amen. I wonder if we could turn in our Bibles to the uh, Gospel of Luke chapter 19. And we're going to read uh, from verse 28 of the chapter. uh, Luke's Gospel chapter 19 and reading from verse 28. And when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a cold tide, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. If any man ask you, why do ye loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees from from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come unto thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every sign and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing. Uh, to the reading of his precious word to all of our hearts. We're coming and now um, in the run-up to Easter in many ways, and we uh, think about in a special way the uh, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want to do over the next couple of weeks as we come up to Easter is to look at some of the events surrounding the uh, cross and the resurrection the events that lead up to uh, what happens there on Calvary's cross and at the tomb. And we are going to 
think tonight about the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry is described in numerous parts of the Word of God. It's in all of the Gospels. And at the Passover, the Jewish men were commanded to leave their homes and they were to go to Jerusalem to the temple. There was a survey done about 10 years after this, and the survey said that there was about uh, 260,000 sacrifices that were made in the temple about the time of Passover. And given that one lamb was to be sacrificed for up to 10 people or up to 10 in a family, we might estimate that there might have been upwards of 2 million people in Jerusalem at that time. And you can imagine what that was like for the Roman authorities uh, as they were trying to uh, keep peace and to dominate the Jews and rule over them uh, at that time. Now, we think about this triumphal entry here. The Lord Jesus is come to Bethphage, and he sends his disciples to find a colt. Now, uh, Matthew ties the account of that closely to the prophecy in Zechariah 9 and verse 9. And we think of how the Lord found the colt, or the disciples found the colt anyway, and they brought him to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we think about this time, probably at this time, the drama that was about to unfold, many of the uh, stage of that had been set. The nails were already forged, maybe lying in the bucket. The crossbeam probably had already been manufactured. We think of how the uh, centurion was already probably ready for the next wave of crucifixions. And the Lord Jesus knows that the end is near. He knew the finality of the cross. And we read in the last chapter before it was written, we heard the final chorus. Uh, We're really here at the final chorus. Uh, And the Lord knows the results. He knows the end from the beginning. Every step now is calculated and every act is premeditated. And I want us to think about that because there is nothing in the Scriptures that are there by chance. We find that the details here are all written down, and they're here for a reason. And what I want to do just in the next few weeks is maybe just to get below the surface a little, and we want to think about what it is that is taking place in the run-up to Calvary. We think about the cross. It is the center of our religion. We think about the resurrection and the great hope that it is for our hearts. And all of these details ought to be something that thrill our souls as we think about what our Savior went through and what he is doing on the run-up to the cross and to the resurrection. So what I want to do tonight is just look at the triumphal entry of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, And I want us just to see what it is that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing here. And first of all, I want you to see the proofs 
that are presented here. The different Gospels of different account, every one of the Gospels has a different account of the um, triumphal entry. And you'll know that the different Gospels have different ways of putting things. Sometimes one Gospel will leave something out and the other Gospel will put it in. And they have all different emphases, uh, the different Gospels. But there's a deep significance in the fact that every one of the Gospels tells us something about the triumphal entry. And here really is the Savior proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. Up until this time, really, he had been out in the country. Uh, The fact that he, he had said to his disciples that he was the Messiah. But in many ways, that fact had really been kept hidden. But now, as there is on the run up to the cross, as the enemies of the Savior are making their last conspiracies together, as it comes to that time when the Savior is going to the cross, I want you to see that in many ways all of this here, as we have it in the triumphal entry, really is the Lord Jesus Christ proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. And you can see that in what he is doing here. He is proclaiming himself to be the king, the rightful ruler. And he does that in a number of ways. Now, the first thing that you notice is that this is at the time of the Passover. And we think of the many prophecies that point to the Lord Jesus Christ and his death there on the cross of Calvary. And the Passover is a great picture of the cross. We think of the lamb, every household a lamb, and how the blood was shed, and how the death angel passed over. And it was a great picture of what our Savior was to do on the cross. You think about John the Baptist, when he pointed to the Lord Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And on the Passover week here, here is the Savior now as the suffering servant who was the Messiah. He is coming now on the Passover. And you think about how that the Jews would have been waiting for a prophet like Moses. And here's the Lord Jesus now, and he comes as the Passover lamb and as the prophet like unto Moses, and he's going to appear as the one who is the fulfillment of all of those things. Something else that indicates the place of the Lord Jesus Christ here is his foreknowledge. And he is very plain now in telling his disciples, as probably never before, what is going to happen. you notice the way that is put. He tells them to go into the village over against them, and there they would find a cold tide wherein never man sat. And he sends them in, and he knows exactly where they are to go and what they will find. And you can see, the, I suppose, the conversation is um, something that I, I, wonder, I wonder what the disciples thought about what was happening. Later on, we read at the upper room that the Lord Jesus gets even more detailed. There's a man entering the city with a jug of water. And when you see the man go up to him and tell him 
that you're asking about an upper room and you can see the detailed knowledge of the Lord Jesus beforehand. And we see the way that he's fulfilling prophecy here and he was concerned about two things. He was concerned about doing the will of his father and there was the thought about fulfilling prophecy and the scripture and you can see the way that the Lord is looking after the details. Nothing's going to get past the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing's going to take him by surprise. And you can see the way that he is revealing something of his deity here, even to his disciples. Something else that indicates that the Lord Jesus here is the Messiah is that when he comes to Jerusalem, he approaches Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Look at verses 28 and 29. It says, And when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascended up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Now, here again, is the Lord Jesus intentionally fulfilling prophecy. You notice the Mount of Olives here is more than just a geographical marker, and it's mentioned as more than a geographical marker. Turn back to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 11, and if you look at that portion of Scripture, here is the uh, the Jewish exiles that had been held captive in Babylon, and the prophecy is about a restoration of Israel to the land. But if you look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 23, it says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is on the east of the city. Now, this is the glory of the Lord leaving Jerusalem. Where does the glory of the Lord leave? Well, he stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city. That's the Mount of Olives. And then later on in Ezekiel's vision, turn over to chapter 43 and verses 1 and 2, and we read about the return of the Lord to the city. And it says, Afterward he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east, the east gate of Jerusalem, and behold, the glory of, the, of God, the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a voice of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. Now, that prophecy, and probably other prophecy too, really is to do with the second coming. You know, when the Lord Jesus comes again, his feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives, and the mountain will be... Uh, cleaved in two, and the waters will flow down into the uh, Dead Sea Valley below and will bring forth fruit in the valley. So it's really a prophecy about the second coming. But the Jews that were reading those prophecies, they were expecting when their Messiah would come, that he would come by the way of the Mount of Olives. So the Lord Jesus, by coming by the way of the Mount of Olives, is proclaiming himself to be the Messiah that was expected, the one who was to be the king, the one who was to be the ruler, the one who was to fulfill prophecy. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ is really proclaiming himself to be king. And I hope that he's king and Lord of your life. There's something else about this portion of scripture that maybe is not often picked out. And that is the tethered colt. You'll see here that when the Lord, uh, or when the Lord sent out the disciples, look at verse 30, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never sat man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. Now, the colt is tied, and the word of God makes a point about the fact that the colt is tied. Now, what does that mean? Well, you think about the Jews. The Jews were descendants of Jacob, and they would have known the prophecies, especially the scribes and the Pharisees. And we think about Jacob's prophecy in Genesis 49, where it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. So he speaks about Shiloh, the bringer of peace. When he comes, there is mention of a tethered ass colt. And the Jews would have picked that up. The Jews would have known what the reference was. You think about how it's a, a donkey that had never been written upon. And again, that was what was used for royal use. It wasn't just used for ordinary use. It was for royal use. This was a young donkey that had never been sat upon before. So once again... The Lord Jesus Christ is proclaiming himself. Something else, there's another way here that he proclaims himself. You'll notice that he calls himself Lord. Look at verses 31 to 34. He told his disciples whom he sent on ahead. And if any man ask you, why do you lose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. The Lord hath need of him. Now, the uh, Greek word there for Lord uh, has several meanings. Uh, it could have just meant the master or the owner has need of him. But you'll notice how the word of God makes it plain that the Lord Jesus was not the owner because it says uh, the owners thereof said unto him, Why loose ye the colt? So the Lord is not the owner. The Lord is the title of the Messiah. You think of what it says in Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And we think of how after the Lord enters Jerusalem, the Lord will use that very Psalm to engage with the Pharisees. So the Lord is presenting himself as the Messiah here. He is the one who had been prophesied. He is the one who had been expected. He is the one that it was 
the great deliverer of the Jews. Maybe not in the way that they were thinking, but he is the mighty deliverer of men and women. So we notice something of the proofs that are presented here. But then I want you to see the proclamations that are made. Because I want you to see the praise that is given to the Lord Jesus here. Now, when we say praise here, I don't think that the people really completely understood what it was that they were doing. They were expecting the Messiah who was to come, and they were greeting him as the Messiah. You'll see this in a wee minute. They were greeting him as the Messiah, but what they expected the Messiah to do was to, as it were, form an army and go in and drive out the Romans and so on. But we are, are made to praise God. That is what we were made for in the Garden of Eden. We have lost that. It says in Romans chapter 1 and 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And sinful man has lost the worship of God. But God is to be worshipped. God is to be praised. And at least we can see here in the praises and the way that they're acting that they're trying to exalt the Lord Jesus. Now, they don't understand fully, but what they are doing is exalting the Lord Jesus. And you can see the way that they're doing it. First of all, you see they place him on a coat. Look at verse 35. And they brought him to Jesus and they cast their garments upon the coat and they set Jesus thereon. Now the Lord enters into Jerusalem on the colt. And not everybody that goes, uh, went into Jerusalem on a donkey or a colt was proclaiming himself to be a king. Uh, but you notice the way that it's put. They take their garments, they make a sort of makeshift um, kind of saddle. And they set the Lord Jesus on the colt. And then they lead him in triumphal procession into the city. And you can see that even it was something that was done to kings in the Old Testament. For example, if you were to turn back to 1 Kings chapter 1 um, and verses 38 and 39, or 38 to 40, it speaks there of uh, Solomon. And it says, uh, So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and the Carathites and the Pelathites went down and caused Solomon to ride upon King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. And Zadok the priest took a horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the trumpet and all the people said, God save King Solomon. And you'll see then that they went up and piped with pipes and rejoiced with great joy and all the rest. But you see Solomon's procession. It says there that they caused Solomon. It wasn't that Solomon just got on the mute. They caused Solomon to ride upon King David's mule. And he rides into the city of Jerusalem, just like the Lord Jesus did. And it is significant here that it is a donkey that he rides on, not a horse. A horse was the animal of um, uh, military power. But a donkey was used more for, you know, you think about in the book of Judges, it speaks about the judges riding upon 
donkeys because that was a civil thing. And here he is, and perhaps the people should have known that really what the Lord Jesus is proclaiming here, that he's coming in peace. He's not coming as a king who is going to destroy the Romans, but he's coming in peace. And the, uh, we think about the donkey, it figures prominently in many of the messianic prophecies. For example, we read in Zechariah 9 and 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So the Lord Jesus is fulfilling that scripture. And you can see that they are honoring him then by setting upon the donkey, upon the foal of the ass. Something else that they do they spread their clothes or their cloaks in front of him. Look at verse 36. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. It's interesting that Luke doesn't mention the waving of the palm branches, just the spreading of the cloaks. In fact, um, Luke's the only gospel that doesn't mention the waving of the palm branches. The palm branches are significant. Palm branches were used in celebrations. Uh, they were symbols of military victory. And really, that's what the people were uh, greeting the Lord as a military commander here. But the spreading of the cloaks or the clothes is significant. They, that was done in respect to a king. You're taking your coat and putting it in the dust. I'm, I'm, I don't know whether you've heard the story of um, Sir Walter Raleigh, you remember uh, the time when the Queen, Queen Elizabeth I, was coming and there was a puddle in the way and Walter Raleigh took off his cloak and spread it over the puddle uh, so that the Queen could uh, go through on uh, dry ground, as it were. Well, this is something similar. This, this is the same kind of thing. They are putting their good cloak, their clothes, on the dusty ground so that the king can tramp them over and walk over them. And they're saying, he's our king, we'll follow his leadership. But, it, but it's also a sign of humility. We, we, they were like um, John the Baptist, when John the Baptist was saying, he must increase, but I must decrease. So it is a sign of humiliation. And that's something that we must do as we greet our king. He's got to be the preeminent. He's the one who is over all. And then they shout his praises. Look at verses 37 and 38. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Remember the angels at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, they said, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. Now they're saying peace in heaven. That's the difference here. I don't know whether they knew, I doubt if they knew what they were saying, uh, but uh, there they are. And they're saying, uh, blessed be the king 
that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then it doesn't say here, but in the other Gospels, it says that they cried Hosanna. And the, the word Hosanna, it, it says in uh, Sam, uh, or Mark 11, verses 9 and 10, Hosanna, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our God, or of our father David, that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And that just means, Lord, save us. Save us. Now, they're thinking about saving them from the Romans. But my, what a cry that is. He is the Savior. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. My, he's the Messiah. He's the King. He's the Savior. He's the suffering servant. And all of these things are being brought out here in all that is taking place in this triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see, uh, when you go into the Bible, of course, when we look in the Bible, everything is something that teaches us. Everything. And when we look at the Scriptures, it's good to take our time and to just look at the details and say, why why did the Holy Spirit put that down there? And we see how the Lord is the Messiah. Now, if the Lord wasn't the Messiah, any, any good teacher at this point where they're saying, uh, glory in the highest and all the rest, blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, should he, shouldn't he have said, I'm not the Messiah? But you'll notice what he did say. You'll notice that the Pharisees rebuke uh, the multitude and they said, Master, rebuke thy disciples. What did he say? He answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. So rather than denying what they are saying, he is reinforcing what they're saying. He says, the very earth itself, the very stones of the earth would cry out to acknowledge their king and acknowledge their maker. My, what a wonderful thing that is. What a wonderful phrase, the stones would cry out. What a clear affirmation this is of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But one more thing that I want you to see, and that is the propitiation that is safeguarded. Because here's the Lord Jesus now. He's entering into Jerusalem. And remember that he has a human nature. And, you know, like us, uh, there would have been a natural turning away from pain and suffering. And here was this multitude, and they're greeting him as the king, as the Messiah. And wouldn't it have been easy to go with the multitude and form an army and try and overcome the Romans and fulfill what they thought was the right way? But I want you to see that the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, as the one who is sinless, we, we read that he, is, he has a greater desire and a greater uh, thought in mind. And in verse 22, he said, the, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be slain 
and be raised the third day. He knew what was coming. He knew what was coming. In verse 44, he says, uh, it says, uh, let, let these things, as they say, sing in your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered under the hands of men. In verse 45, but they understood this, not the saying, and was hid from them, and they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him. So the Lord Jesus knows what is going to take place. But you think of that phrase there in Luke 9 and verses 51 to 56. It says that it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. My, here he is. And as a flint, he set in his face to do what he had been charged to do. And that was to die on the cross and shed his blood for the propitiation of our sins. And that was his great desire. That was his great mission to come and to die on that center cross of Calvary. And nothing was going to divert him from that. How easy it would have been to accept the accolades and to accept the praise. But here's a savior who had a greater end in view, and that was the salvation of you and me. My, we think of him being greeted here and praised, and here he is, blessed be the king. But he's not going to take the accolades. Why? Because he is going to die on the cross in your place and mine. And thank God for the cross tonight. The Lord Jesus was not going to be diverted. He's not going to let the devil bring any kind of diversion into what he's going to do. He is with a, as a flint set in his face to go to Jerusalem. And he knows what Jerusalem means. It means death. And it means suffering. And it means suffering of the most, uh, uh, of the most heinous kind. He, he says... Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished, for he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted upon, and they shall scourge him, and put him to death. And the third day he'll rise again. He knew that it was not going to be a swift death. He knew that it was going to be a torturous death. And yet he went to that cross for you and for me. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He's the Savior. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And may we worship him in spirit and in truth tonight for his name's sake. Let's just bow, please, in a word of prayer. And do remember the needs. Uh, do remember the service on the Lord's Day. Youth Fellowship on Friday, the Sunday School Bible class, uh, the children's meetings, uh, and the youth or the junior youth, and all of the meetings. And let's pray for God's blessing upon us. Do pray for our land uh, that uh, our politicians will have wisdom at this present time as well. And then uh, pray for uh, we can pray for that policeman that God will. Raise him to health and strength. And remember all of our folks of our own congregation too 
who need our prayers. So let's just unite together at the throne of grace. Our loving God and our gracious Father in heaven, we thank thee tonight for the great vision uh, that we have had and these wonderful truths that are concerning the triumphal entry of our Savior into Jerusalem. And we thank thee, Lord, that he was the Messiah. We're glad that he did fulfill the Scriptures. We thank, Lord, of the many ways in which our Savior uh, fulfilled all of the prophecies that were made. And our Father, we uh, recognize that those things couldn't have been done if there wasn't reality. And we thank thee, Lord, for the fact that we have a mighty Savior who is the one prophesied, who is the one who came to be our deliverer and to be the one who would deliver us from sin. Lord, it would have been one thing to deliver the Jews from the bondage and the oppression of Roman authority. But Lord, what a wonderful thing that we have been delivered from the oppression and captivity of sin. And Lord, we thank Thee. It's not just a temporary deliverance, but Lord, we thank Thee it's an everlasting deliverance. So gracious God, we pray that Thou wouldst bless us. Do remember the meetings and all of these things. We think of our sister Joyce that was with us last week, and we pray that Thou wouldst continue to work uh, there and open the way for the preaching or for the proclamation of the gospel in our schools and in the different places around the province. And we pray for a move of God in these days. Bless us as we pray now. Pour out the spirit of supplication upon us. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things.